Our first reading comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 11 to 16, which we looked at last year. 2 Samuel centres on the reign of David at one stage during his life. And God made great promises to David about his plans for David's kingdom. Let's remind ourselves of these promises. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men. Did I just go off? Sorry, I'll go back to that. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Our second reading comes from the book of 1 Kings. We're doing chapter 1, verses 1 to 40. As we launch into this new series, we notice David, well advanced in years and nearing the end of his life. Verse 1, when King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoda, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, and Rei, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fatted calves at the stone of Zor. Heleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me 
and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is your want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant by the Lord your God. Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fatted calves and sheep, He has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed his face to the ground. Nathan said, have you, my lord, the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fatted calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar, the priest. Right now they're eating and drinking with him, saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant Zadok the priest, and Benaiah son of Jehoda, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servant know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with a face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. King David said, call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servant with you and have Solomon my son mount on my own mule and take him down to Gion. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Kerithites, and Pelethites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. 
And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Thanks, Wayne. Morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Pete Cheng. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the Lakes. And yeah, it's my joy this morning to open up uh, God's Word. And yeah, we're, we're kicking off a new series, uh, First Kings, so it's going to be exciting. But as we kick off uh, One Kings, yeah, it would be helpful for us to get up to speed uh, with where we're at, uh, where we're at in regards to Israel's history. And so as we've worked our way through First and Second Samuel in the past couple of years, we've seen this nation of Israel uh, and Israel are God's people and they've really struggled with this issue of leadership. So on the one hand, they've got God as their leader. But then what they do is that they start to look around and they notice the nations. They notice the nations around them. And those nations who are very strong and powerful and mighty, they've got powerful kings to lead them and guide them and fight battles for them. So even though God had led his people Israel so caringly, so lovingly, the Israelites want to be like the other nations. They want a king like them. We see that in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, And the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel, they focus on those first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Now, Saul was a bit of a flop. Uh, He he was a really impressive and, and wise leader, but his problem was that he quickly forgot that he was supposed to be God's king. He was, to, he was supposed to listen and be guided by God's word for his instruction. But he instead blew his own trumpet and he believed the hype about himself. And so since he rejected the word of God, God rejected him as king. We see that in 1 Samuel 15. Saul would be replaced by David as God's anointed chosen king. And after many struggles and challenges, David is essentially established as the ruler over Israel. God grants David many victories and his place as the greatest king in Israel is firmly cemented. Uh, But that's not to say that David's rule was altogether perfect and upright, far from it. Uh, Who could forget his adultery with Bathsheba and then the subsequent murder of Uriah, her husband. David was a flawed and sinful individual, but with his trust in God, he was able to unite the nation of Israel and bring blessing and peace to that nation. But before we get into the text of 1 Kings, along with understanding its place in the history of Israel, we need to understand its place in the history of what God is doing in the world. Because really, history is all about His, God's story. You know, that picture that Hayley uh, threw up before, that's really helpful, isn't it? Uh, I reckon those senior teens did a fantastic job. Uh, let's, let's run through that again just quickly. So w- what do we see God doing throughout the world? Well, to begin with, God created the world and he made the world good. Uh, And when human beings were made, his assessment of creation was it was very good. And so Adam and Eve enjoyed paradise with God in the garden. 
Uh, but of course, things didn't stay that way for very long because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They doubted God's word and they doubted his goodness. And ever since that time, God has promised to send an offspring from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and do away with evil for all time. So in and amongst the ugliness of human sin, uh, God chose Abraham and made some huge and great promises to him. Uh, God promised that through Abraham's offspring, blessing would come to the whole wide world. And so there would be a return to paradise. Um, And those promises are the things that we look forward to throughout the rest of the scriptures. Now, the descendants of Abraham, they end up in Egypt as slaves, and God brought them out of slavery by his mighty hand. He gave them his law, and he brought them into the promised land. Later, this is where we're up to, later up he, ruled, he uh, raised up kings to rule on his behalf. And as we read in 2 Samuel 7, he promised to the great King David that his offspring, someone from David's line, would rule forever. Sadly though, the descendants of Abraham, they constantly rebelled against God. And God, so God sent nations like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, to destroy Israel and exile them from the promised land. During the time of exile and mourning, God raised up prophets, prophets who reminded the people of those promises to Abraham, prophets who reminded the people uh, of God, David's son, to, to, look up, to look out for David's son, that one who would rule on God's behalf forever. And many years later, Jesus was born into the world. So Jesus, remember, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David. And he is the one who through God would bring blessing to the world. He is the one who would rule forever as God's promised king, the one that he promised to David. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection of Jesus that God brings this blessing to the whole wide world, the, the blessing that he promised way back uh, with Abraham. Jesus died to pay for sin and rebellion of the world. He crushed Satan's head and now he reigns forever uh, as God's king. So this term, as we centre in on that part of the Bible which deals with Israel's kings, we must read it within this broader, bigger, grander scheme of what God is doing throughout the ages. Because only when we read it that way, we fully appreciate the wonder and splendor of our great God. That he achieves his plans and his purposes to restore all things in and amongst and even through the messiness of human brokenness and sin. All right, let's dig into uh, First Kings now. We're looking at First Kings chapters 1 and 2. Uh, please have your Bibles open because, yeah, we're going to be referring to that uh, along the way. Now, as I mentioned before, David, we're told, is very old. So if you look at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 1, when King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. 
It's actually a really sad picture that we're confronted with right at the start of Kings. David, this once mighty warrior, slayer of giants, the leader of Israel's army, conqueror of nations, we're told that he's laying in bed old. He, he can't even keep himself warm when, when they put all these sheets on him. He's a shadow of his former glory. You know, growing up, uh, I see plenty of Michael J. Fox on the screen. Uh, he was a star of sitcoms and many movies, so Back to Future being one of his big successes. Uh, he was funny, he was popular, he was successful. But pretty early on in his life, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, and over the years, it's really affected him. And, and so it's really sad to see that this one's young, funny, vibrant person has been affected in such a way by this disease. It affected his mobility, his cognition, all that sort of thing. But to his credit, uh, he, he battled, he has battled with the disease for over 30 years. Um, but nonetheless, it's really sad to see the disease just cripple his body. And in a similar way, we, we look at King David and it's sad. David is on his last legs. In fact, he's probably even too frail to, to stand up. And so we're told that he's laying down in bed, vulnerable, weak, can't even keep himself warm. You know, in this world, we all face sickness and ageing and ill health. You know, for some of us, those things might seem really far off. For others, you might feel those realities a, a little bit more acutely. But whatever your life circumstance, young, old, healthy, sick, all of us at some point, need to come to grips with our own mortality. You know, things like youth and vitality, they won't last forever. And we need to live our lives with a greater perspective than simply living day to day. And I want to suggest to us today that that perspective that we need is God's own and what He is doing in the world. You know, David, as we see him here in his weakness and his frailty, he struggles to see that. But as we go on in these chapters, hopefully it will become clear that God's plans and His purposes and the promises that accompanied those plans, those are the things that David clings to even in his dying days. Okay, so David, he's old, we get that. He's about to die. Uh, and the natural question that if you're an Israelite, you would ask at this point is, who then is going to be king. Well, David's advisors, they, they haven't given up on their old king just yet. Um, so they think that he could, might still be able to lead them. And so they hatch this plan, find this young, beautiful maiden who might reinvigorate David. They find Abishag the Shunammite. She seems to fit the bill. So verse 4 of chapter 1. The woman was very beautiful... She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. It's such a sus situation that we find ourselves in. Hey, let's get the prettiest girl out there um, and give her to David. Maybe that will kick him into gear one last time. Now, thankfully, we're told that the king had no sexual relations with her. 
I can't actually work out if he wasn't able to have sex with her or if he deliberately chose not to have sex with her. But one thing that's clear is that David is not going to be the leader of Israel going forward. So what happens next? In steps Adonijah, verse 4 and 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him uh, by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. So Adonijah, as as we saw in that video, he was David's fourth son and next in line to the throne. He was next in line uh, because his firstborn Amnon had been uh, murdered by his half-brother Absalom. Uh, David's second son, Kiliab, he probably died at a young age because we don't really hear much about him after his birth. Uh, Absalom's uh, David's third son tries to uh, usurp David uh, and take the throne for himself. That ends up with him dying in battle. And so now we come to Adonijah. He, he essentially is the crown prince. He's a man full of ambition. I will be king, he confidently asserts. He's a good-looking fellow, we're told. Uh, he's a man who liked to look the part. He gathered horses and chariots for himself. He was politically astute. You know, if he was going to be king, then he would need powerful supporters around him. So on one side, he's got Joab. Remember Joab, he's the commander of David's armies and an absolute brute of a man. Uh, also Abiathar the priest, uh, a man who formerly was loyal to David and had served him faithfully. And so from a worldly point of view, Adonai just seems to fit the bill of the perfect king. But hopefully you're sitting there thinking, that doesn't seem altogether right, because God seems to operate differently to that of the world. If that's uh, you, then good on you. It means you've been paying attention uh, and you've probably remembered some of the key aspects from 1 and 2 Samuel. Saul was an impressive king, wasn't he? A popular leader, the people's choice. And yet he became self-absorbed and forgot that his leadership was to be in line with God's ways. He chose to ignore God and had the kingdom taken away from him. Likewise, Absalom, the young up-and-comer, he gathered this mighty army for himself, had a great following, by worldly standards, super impressive, but he was not the one chosen by God. David, at that time, was king. David was the one who, through God, would lead and guide his people. And so as we come to Adonijah and his claims for the throne, we ought rightly be nervous. Based on Israel's history and what we know of God, it doesn't feel like he's the right guy. And that's further confirmed for us when we consider uh, 2 Samuel 7, the second Bible that we read. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, obviously, it outlines those great promises that God had made to David regarding his household. So let's remind ourselves of those promises. Uh, We're at verse 11 of 2 Samuel. It should come up on the screen. There it is. 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's descendants would rule for all time. And as David nears his death, as he rests with his ancestors, Israel was to look to God for the one who he would raise up to succeed him. Notice that? It was God who would establish a house for David. It was God who would raise up an offspring to succeed David. It was God's choice. So who then was the king to succeed David? Well, onto the scene steps Nathan the prophet, the very man who who spoke those words uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7. As Adonijah makes a claim for the throne, Nathan steps in and suggests that another ought to be king of Israel. He comes up with a plan uh, together with Bathsheba to suggest to David that Solomon as opposed to Adonijah, or to be made king of Israel. Okay, so we're back in uh, 1 Kings 1 now, so follow along from verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 1. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, Let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. Uh, It's a cunning plan. Uh, but it's a plan designed to wake David up from his indifference to Adonijah's plans. It's a plan designed, ultimately, to remind David of those 2 Samuel 7 promises about God establishing David's offspring who would rule forever. In Nathan and through Nathan, God had spoken and ordained Solomon as the successor to the throne. Uh, We're also told that David had sworn an oath to Bathsheba that Solomon would be king to follow David. And so David's plans to wake David up from his senses works perfectly. Tag team of Nathan and Bathsheba, they alert David of his need to take action. And as the rest of chapter 1 plays out, Solomon eventually becomes appointed king by David. So look at verse 30 of chapter 1. Uh, So this is David speaking to Bathsheba. I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Notice here that it's not the young, attractive maiden that sparks David into action but a reminder of the firm promises of God, that he, God, would be the one who would establish his kingdom forever. 
You know, we often go looking for purpose and meaning in all the wrong things. We think that money, possessions, experiences, romantic interests, we think that those things will provide us with comfort and joy. But true hope is found in God alone. And in particular, his promises. His promises to redeem and restore the world. His promise to rescue from sin and to raise up an upright and merciful leader who would reign forever. We need to look to God and rest in his sure promises for meaning and purpose. So with Solomon chosen as the next king of Israel, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 essentially detail how Solomon goes about establishing his rule. And I call this next section the clean-up job. Um, you know, Haley mentioned uh, Netflix before. The stuff you read here really wouldn't feel out of place in a mafia film. You can read about the details yourself later, but let's just say that killing off your opponents is a really effective way of ensuring that things go smoothly for you. So we read about Adonijah, he's the wannabe king. It seems that he, he just couldn't let go of his desire for the kingship. Um, and so he's put to death. Abiathar, the priest, uh, he's relieved of his priestly duties and he's exiled. Now, he's spared death because he was at one stage loyal uh, to David and a trusted follower. But you have to wonder what happened to him to go from this loyal servant of David's uh, to siding with Adonijah and his grab for the throne. Maybe he was just swept up in, by Adonijah's charm. Maybe he became disillusioned with the fading old David and his ability to lead. Whatever it was, his former faithfulness to God's king gave way to self-interest and he paid dearly for it. Another to face Solomon's judgment uh, was Joab. And Joab, he was such a brutal man. He had this real thirst for blood. You know, he was loyal to David as commander of his armies, but now he decided to follow Adonijah. And no fewer than three times during David's reign did Joab defy the king's orders and put to death men whom David wanted to extend mercy to. Joab is killed off in judgment for his crimes. Likewise, Shimei, he's done away with as well. Remember Shimei? He was the one who cursed David bitterly when David was on the run from Absalom. And initially, Solomon extends Shimei mercy and allows him to live close by, keep your enemies close, he allows him to live within the bounds of Jerusalem. But when he defies that order, then the king has him struck down as well. And at the end of all that, we read in verse 46 that the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. As I mentioned earlier, this sort of stuff, it's got all the trademarks of a mafia boss or a drug cartel storyline. So even at this early stage of Solomon's reign, things are, are murky. He's clearly God's chosen king, but some of his motivations and actions seem questionable. He's anointed by God to be his king, but is he really the one 
who would rule forever, uh, the king that to Samuel promised. Now, we skipped over it before, uh, but I just want to return briefly to the start of chapter 2. These are David's last words to his son, the the future king, Solomon. Um, Be this, David says, be this, Solomon, and you will be a successful king. These are lovely words, let's have a read of them. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do, and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. The true king of Israel would walk in God's ways. He will listen to God and be guided by him all the days of his life. He'll be subjected to God's laws, his commands, always in the service of the people and not living for his own gain. And so, as we follow Solomon's rule initially and then the other kings throughout 1 Kings, this is the yardstick by which their reign must be measured. Spoiler alert, as a whole, they suck. Uh, They fail miserably at it. There is this wholesale rejection of God and his wisdom and this is replaced by selfish ambition and pride. But what that should do was to drive the Israelites and us to seek after the one who truly walks in God's ways, who is always obedient to God and his word, the one who is faithful to God with their whole being, as the only one worthy of honour, as being God's forever king. And as we've pointed out a number of times already, uh, it's clear that that mantle falls solely on the shoulders of Jesus. So have a look at what the New Testament speaks about uh, Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, or from 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Jesus, the risen King, is worthy of all honour and praise because he always obeyed God's word. His was the only life that was altogether right and just and whole. There's no question marks whatsoever over his character and he is able to grant us forgiveness of sin because of his perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the great king that the whole scriptures testify to. 
The question that we need to ask ourselves is, have we ourselves recognised that? Have we bowed the knee to Jesus in honour and praise for who he is? You know, Peter in Acts, he later calls on his listeners to repent at the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Why? Because as the perfect king overall, he shows up our faults and our failings and our shortfalls. When we come before the perfect, majestic King Jesus, our only response is to recognise just how far short we've fallen of God's standard. But praise God that Jesus has met this standard. You know, later, Peter promises the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who would call on Jesus as Saviour and King. Have you done that? There is an offer for you today. There is an offer for you right now to bow the knee to Jesus and follow him. And with that comes blessing and forgiveness, joy and purpose. All right, as we wrap up now, what are we to make of kings and how are we to respond to it as Christians today? I'll be honest, as I've been wrestling uh, with this book, as I've been wrestling with this passage, struggled for a long time to reconcile how these clearly flawed, sinful, politically motivated individuals help us honour God more as Christians today. You know, they're supposed to be God's divinely appointed rulers, and yet they fail time and time again. And as a Christian, they're, they're almost an embarrassment. But I, for one, I'm super glad that these stories, the stories about God's people, his kings, I'm glad that they are in the Bible because it tells to me that all of this stuff is real because we know it, life is messy. You can't make up this stuff. It is real people living under the cloud and stain of sin. Life just is murky. You know, so we often make decisions and we think that we're acting completely honourably, but really, often, it's just murky. And so the Scriptures point to this murky, sin-stained reality of life and the human decision-making that follows it. But within that, the Bible keeps driving us to look beyond the murkiness to contemplate life within God's grander picture. And as we do that, we come to delight in the wonder and majesty of all that God is doing, and especially through his son, Jesus. Uh, So this is how John Woodhouse put it. He was a former principal at the Bible college that I went to. This is a quote of his. Our disappointment with human governments should help us see the wonder of God's promise of a kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy, Romans 14. The failure of human rulers helps us see our need for one who's not only good and powerful, but also wise enough to know and to do what is right. And in Jesus, we have that in spades. A ruler who is good and powerful and wise enough to always do what is right. And he does that all for us and for our benefit. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning.
Uh, Father, we praise you that you are a promise keeper, that in spite of and in the midst of human frailty and sin, you're working out your purposes. Lord, we ask that you might grant us to see the world and reality as you see it. Father, dim our lives to the trappings and temptations of this life and instead help us to marvel and wonder at Jesus. We praise you that Jesus is the forever king, the ruler who is powerful and good and always does what is right. May we live for him all our days. Amen.